Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. We're thrilled to have you here with us today. We've got another exciting episode with author and Enneagram expert, A.J. Sherrill. A.J. has authored several books. His latest is Being With God. He's also written Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. He is a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. He knows his Enneagram really, really well, folks. So this is a real treat for all of us. He's a self-pres three-wing four, by the way. We're happy to have him on the show. Hey, before I move on, I want to remind you again that Ian dropped his book on December 28, about a month ago now, and we're getting great responses from people who have already read the book. I want to remind you that you can get that book anywhere fine books are sold, and the audio version is available as well. Hey, that's it for me, Anthony Skinner. Really glad you're here, folks. And now, here is the host of our show, Ian Crumb. My friend, AJ Sherrill, Enneagram 3 with a four-wing author, friend, welcome to Typology. So good to see you both. It's great to see you. Good to be with you, man. All right, let's just jump right in, my friend. You are uh, an Enneagram expert, workshop teacher, guide. You've got uh, books on the Enneagram. I want to start by uh, just simply asking you to share a little bit about your history with it before we jump into more specifics. Yeah, I first learned the theory from Father Richard Rohr. This would have been back around 2010. I was doing my doctorate program, and uh, Richard had invited a few of us out to his home to just kind of go through what is now called the learning school. And he sort of got off, we got him off task talking about the Enneagram and like we managed to like get him off task for about half a day. It was hilarious. And so he just riffed on this and I just drank it up as a pastor, now priest. It was like, oh my goodness, this is sort of naming things that have been patterns. Um, It's organizing ideas in language that's just giving me all sorts of clarity about Mm-hmm. Um, why I do what I do and what I don't know, I don't know. And then from there, actually, um, we haven't, I, we probably have talked about this, Ian, at some point, but you invited me and a few other pastors when I was pastoring in New York City out to Greenwich, where you were hosting a workshop with Suzanne Stabile. This was before the road back to you. And so uh, I had the privilege of going out and spending a day with y'all. And it, I came up to Suzanne at a break and I was like, hey, who's doing stuff on like spiritual rhythms and formation using the Enneagram, like specifically rooted in the the church um, for the church. And she was like, I don't know anyone to my knowledge. And so I had my dissertation sort of like right there conceived. And so I've just been since that time, really, um, I've just learned so much from it about my own life, about my own family. And it's been helpful for me in ministry um, as well. And so it's been a great ride and I teach it. And um, I also more than anything, just get to learn from people like you. And so I'm really grateful. Mm. Well, let's talk about the Enneagram and spiritual formation. I, we've never covered this topic. I mean, mm-hmm. we have, but, but uh, indirectly, you know, we've mm-hmm. never had a very specific conversation. Like, oh, let's just really, you know, hunker down. So give me a 50,000 foot perspective on the Enneagram and spirituality. And then let's dive deeper into types and spirituality and, and particularly spiritual formation. Okay. So the Enneagram is a spiritual formation tool. Let's start there. So like my my phrase would be that the Enneagram is always a means and never an end. I think a lot of wounding and, and just um, 
cynicism comes out of the Enneagram when people treat it as an end. In other words, it's a parlor trick to shrink people down, to put people in a corner, all that stuff that I'm sure you've covered before. Um, and so when we treat the Enneagram as a means, it is the beginning of beginning to understand not only your own life, but to get to name things. Like a phrase that's helpful for me is that we can't change what we won't name. And so once we name something, once we name wound, once we name areas of brokenness or areas of vices, a longing for virtue, character formation, um, we can then think about how the Enneagram helps us name things that are broken, longing, lacking in our lives so that we can run toward the virtue side of that. And what's helpful is that people don't wake up in my tradition. My, my background is the way of Jesus. People don't accidentally become like Jesus. It's always a radical intent. And it's not about earning, as Dallas Willard would say. It's about effort. And so spiritual practices can help us gain clarity and access into being a kind of person that looks more like Jesus through a virtuous life. Yeah. But I think a lot of people think, well, you know, if I, in my tradition, this is what someone might think subconsciously. If I go to church, if I give some money, maybe I join a small group, um, in 30 years, I'll wake up and be different. Most people, I feel like, just wake up after 30 years just feeling older. And it's because people like me, priests and pastors in the church, have not done a very good job resourcing the great Christian tradition to showcase all of these pathways of following Jesus that can really help us based on our personality, become nuanced, become more virtuous, grow into the fruit of the spirit that look more like Jesus in 30 years than we mm. did before. Mm. So how does, in your view, the Enneagram, and now again, not all of the people who listen to our podcast would self-identify as Christians or coming from the Christian tradition, but let's stick there for just a moment. How do you see the Enneagram as a useful tool in spiritual formation? Yeah. So it's, let's think about it in two ways. It's not virtual reality. Virtual reality takes you into sort of another world. It's more like augmented reality. So what the Enneagram does is it gives you information on your lens. So if you put on a pair of glasses in augmented reality, it gives you access to more data than you had before, why you show up the way you do, what's driving your motivations, why you continue to choose these patterns, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, that's been helpful to name. So the Enneagram is sort of that thing which named and read my journal, which to use the words of Richard Rohr, it's, it's the greatest cause of humiliation is where you can typically source your enneotype. And so for me, when I named as a type three, that I struggle with um, a pretty fair amount of shame, a pretty fair amount of achievement orientation, performative sort of way of life. There were all sorts of like areas of life, such as deceit, manipulation, uh, fear of what others think about me. These have everything to do with um, longing for greater amounts of like patience in my life, self-control, um, longing for gentleness because uh, I can sort of become frustrated with people if they don't fit within the sort of paradigm of leadership that I'm looking to go into in the church I lead or the community I'm a part of. And so the Enneagram was helpful for me because it created this whole language, this whole universe of being able to name that's, that's the best way to talk about how I show up. And I didn't know that it was in me. It was buried in my subconscious. But now that I'm aware of that, I can pair that more specifically with practices. They're going to help me grow toward a certain virtue because that's what I long for in life. 
Mm. So if someone comes to you at a workshop, or maybe if you're a spiritual director, right? And they say to you, um, gee, I, I really want to use the Enneagram for purposes of spiritual transformation to become, in your words, um, more of a mirror image of the, of the person of Christ, right? Um, how do you use it? Like, what would you say to someone who asks you the question, how, how do I use this system to bring about that kind of change? Yeah, I, I think, first of all, you know, what's so helpful in identifying your enneotype is it narrows down like a universe of motive possibilities and gives you just a few to sort of pay attention to. So like, um, you know, for a three, let's just take the vice of deceit. Um, that was helpful for me to realize that so much of my strategies in life to get where I want to go um, involves me sort of being someone that I'm not um, that I, I, I'm not necessarily all the time in order to achieve the outcome that I want to achieve in a particular environment. So I might say to that person, if you wrestle with that, think about the kind of person you want to be, right? So maybe that has to do um, with authenticity. Okay, great. So authenticity might be your virtue. If you know that your vice is deceit and authenticity is your virtue, then you have to become creative and to say, okay, what practice can I do on a regular basis that will train my neurons and train my habits in life that I become more susceptible to veering a different way away from deceit and more toward authenticity. So for example, someone might say in the tradition I'm a part of, do you have a confessing life? Like, do you have someone or is there an avenue that you regularly allow yourself to be authentic and to name things that often stay buried in you in order to just get it out and to acknowledge the fact that we have not always been authentic in all of these sort of ways, these relationships, these conversations. And that sort of practice is the beginning of cultivating virtue. Again, I think a lot of people hope virtue will just spontaneously happen to them over the course of life. And yet I think that's why a lot of people feel disappointed in their spirituality. It's because it actually does take work in order to grow in these things. And so I would say the Enneagram is the beginning of naming things in order to understand how you can embrace certain practices and rhythms and habits in order to become the person that you long to be. Mm, that's beautiful. We had a conversation earlier today um, with somebody and, you know, I often talk about 12 step spirituality as recovering, you know, alcoholic and, and drug addict from years back. And I, I talk about, the importance of the fourth and fifth step, you know, uh, very simply that we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves in the fourth step. And then we admit to God, to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs, which is the fifth step. And, you know, obviously I'm an Episcopalian, an Episcopal priest and, and, and uh, confession is, you know, uh, an, an important feature, at least in the Anglo Catholic tradition, mm. you know, at the very least. And, you know, um, I think it's sorely missed. And I, I do think, in fact, I think I even mentioned it in the road back to you, the importance of uh, having a confessor, you know, um, I'm pretty sure about that. And I think I might even mention it when I'm talking about threes um, or yeah, certainly, it, you know, having a, a therapist at the very least, which is an totally. entirely different dynamic. And I think even like a, another degree of that, if even that's uncomfortable as a starting point is at least begin with a journal where you can get that stuff out and begin to name things and go back and, Review the last 24 hours. You know, how did you show up in certain conversations? Where were you hiding? 
Where were you inauthentic? Where did you lie? Where did you practice deceit in order to get what you want? Mm-hmm. And I think you're, I, I'm always surprised. Um, I think it takes effort not to move towards shame in that, but I'm always surprised like just the, um, the mischief that I can cause in my own life and in my own relationships and naming that as part of the healing process. Mm-hmm. And I like, I like that you laughed as you said that a little mm-hmm. bit, because I do think that humor in addition to a tremendous amount of self-compassion as you do that work is important. Uh, I, uh, I frequently go to a, uh, a Buddhist community here because I'm very much into mindfulness and uh, into, and, and I find that Buddhists really have this nailed. And of course, I, I also study the, the old Catholic tradition as well. So I have a, you know, kind of a, a vocabulary around meditation that, you know, but anyway, I've got a, this teacher, right? And even though I don't self-identify as a Buddhist, he's been tremendously helpful and gracious with me, you know, about, about learning. And there's a lot of crossover and bleed over in between those tra- tra- traditions in that regard. And, you know, uh, he's really uh, helped me to see um, how a regular practice of meditation gives me the ability, well, let me put it this way, the attention training that I get mm-hmm. from practicing meditation gives me the capacity to step back and with a sense of humor and with self-compassion, observe my crazy thinking, right? To observe the, um, the machinations and all the gymnastics that my ego does from moment to moment on a daily basis. And just to kind of step back and go and, and actually kind of giggle and go, oh, there you go again. And not shame myself, which is completely unhelpful. It's just as if to say, well, of course you're doing that. That's what the ego does. You know, it's just it's what it does. Now, and of course, that's not to, to resign and say, well, it's always going to be that way. It's just part of the journey of decoupling myself from the work of the ego can only be done when I can observe it regularly. And the only way I can res- do that regularly is by attention training so that I have that capacity to observe myself. And I think that's actually something the Enneagram, great Enneagram masters have always taught. Yeah. I I think stepping back and observing is such a huge part of that and befriending parts of us that we would rather hide. I mean, Mm -hmm. to your point about um, mindfulness, you know, they say that there's, you have two amygdala, which you probably know, and they're like almond shapes in your brain and they're small, but they contain about 12 million neurons a piece. And these are the fight flight centers that we usually live from. And Um, what they're finding is that it takes only about 30 hours of practicing silence and solitude, contemplative spirituality or mindfulness to begin to see fruit in the area of being less reactive, less responding. And that doesn't mean we're being less active. It means we're being less reactive to life. And that's where so much mischief in my life comes from is a reactive life that is Um, sort of freighted with emotion and assumption. And so growing in that way of my life where I'm more patient with my daughter, I'm a better husband because I'm more patient. I'm a better leader and pastor because I'm more patient. These are areas of life where I have found the practice of spirituality is so wedded to our growth personally. If we are going to become the, the telos or the aim in which we sense that our journey is meant to be on, which takes effort. Mm. Absolutely. All right, let's talk about this journey from vice to virtue a little bit. And if we can, I know this is very difficult, very quickly, let's just move <clears> through the types. And you you give me a spiritual practice if you can. Uh, and th- there may be bleed over, you know, whatever 
But on the journey, for example, of the one from uh, anger to serenity, let's start there. As you are, are counseling people, teaching workshops, how do you help people engage in practices type by type that will help them make that journey? Yeah. So I give people, first of all, I would say it's really good to freshen up your, your rhythms. So like, if you like a certain rhythm, I think some people feel stuck after like, let's say uh, four months, six months, or even a year or two into it. I think, first of all, give yourself permission to realize like there are so many practices available for us. And what are practices in my tradition practices are engaging the presence. And so what we're finding is I want contact with the divine. So that's all practices are in of themselves. I think they're just sort of like um, tools in order to help us to be in the presence of the divine. And so um, one, one of the things I would say is that there are two ways that we should think about practices. The first is what I call downstream practices. The second are what I call upstream. So imagine this, imagine you're on a lazy river. The downstream practices for you are going to be the practices for each type that are really natural and easy. There are certain practices that flow with your personality, and those are good. Those should be celebrated. Those should be continued in your life. There are other practices which are upstream. These are ones that you would probably avoid if you had the option. Nevertheless, there's good things in there for you because it's challenging your ego to swim upstream and you have to fight for that virtue. You have to fight for that character. And so when it comes to like, let's think about this in terms of triads, if you're familiar with the Enneagram for your listener, there are some that are more sort of cerebrally head-based when it comes to their practices. There are others that are more body or gut-based when it comes to their practices. So that would have to do with being in nature or hiking or justice or things of that nature. And then there are others of us that are more emotionally heart-centered in our practices that we want to feel something, right? And so we should think about our practices, but not just think about the ones that we like that we're good at our downstream. We should also be thinking about our upstream at the same time. So I would say to find two practices that correspond with a kind of virtue that you long to grow in is really helpful when you think about each season of your life. So for the one, if you're struggling with anger and you long for more serenity, one of the things that I always tell ones to reflect on when it comes to the upstream is to journal. And the reason I say that is that you should focus when you begin to journal, you not just focus on your imperfections, but you should start every single journal by beginning to name what's working in your life. Most ones are so preoccupied with what's dysfunctional, what's broken, what's not working. They never actually begin to name, wait a second, there's actually something working in my life right now. And I need to name that as a practice because joy is cultivated through gratitude. And so when I can name things working in my life, that helps take the edge off of whatever anger that I'm sensing about this conversation, this relationship, this environment, and can help bring joy into all of life. Mm, great. Let's talk about twos. Too. So I'll, I'll just give, what I'll do is I'll give an upstream for each practice that I think could Great. be helpful. The upstream, meaning this is the one that might be more challenging for each personality type. The, the two, I might say centering prayer, you know, that's the idea of moving into just being with God, not having to um, solve anything or do anything. It's just sitting in the presence of the divine, allowing the divine to love you. And so it's not performative. What happens for twos is that twos have this sort of orientation that they work for love rather than working from love. 
That's a very, those are, those are two different universes because mm-hmm. twos want to work and serve for love. In other words, if I do this, perhaps you'll do this back to me, or I will get this in return. But when twos can learn to, to serve or to, to actually be in a certain place, they can learn to love and serve from love. And so I'm really, I'm really, um, uh, pretty convicted to always remind twos that you're loved for who you are, not what you do. And it's a really beautiful thing for you to sit in the presence of the divine so that you know who you are, so that you can serve out of clarity from that place. And that you also have the freedom to say no when you're not called to it. So centering prayer is one. I would recommend uh, Father Thomas Keating's book, Open Heart, Open Mind, which would be a great place to start if that's something that you are needing to grow in because twos really struggle to just sit and be. They value doing over being. Yeah, and there's there's that... I, you know, it's a good book. Cynthia Bergeau's book on, on centering prayer. There's also Martin Laird's book, Into the Silent Land, which is, Fantastic. I think, a, a seminal work that just about anyone who's interested in meditation or actually contemplation from his from his perspective, not meditation, though they have a lot of similarities um, uh, in outcomes, uh, is another book that because, you know, we get a lot of pushback uh, from some people in the in the Christian tradition who don't realize that meditation and contemplation are very rooted in what we do. It's just that, you know, like right around the Reformation, a lot of this stuff got thrown out, you know, sort of, you know, if it's not in the Bible, you know what I mean? It's like, so anyhow, those two books would be great, great resources for people. Well, what's interesting is that it is in the Bible. You know, that's the thing that I find so hilarious is like in, in my latest book, Being with God, there's a whole section of one of the chapters in the middle where I show constantly Jesus is leaving the crowds, going out into the desert and just sitting in the presence of God. We can't honestly believe that Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness was just talking at God. We have to believe that so much of that time was around stillness and solitude and silence and knowing who he was in the father and then moving into operating back into ministry from that space. So I think we see it everywhere in the new Testament, particularly the gospels. Yes. The, the problem is, is that for me anyway, that in the Christian tradition, it, we've become such a belief-based mm. uh, rather than a practice-based religion. It's mm. no wonder to me that so many people are migrating to Buddhism. Buddhism is a practice-based, you know, system, you know, versus Christianity, which is really much more of a belief-based system. Yeah. Uh, and I would imagine you probably agree with that based on, you know, the content of our conversation so far. It's why I think a lot of what I'm seeing, a lot of patterns. Um, so speaking from my frame of reference, um, I'm seeing a lot of uh, followers of Jesus much more interested in recovering the Hebrew way of, of his rabbi-ness. Mm-hmm. In other words, that Jesus would say things like, hey, f- like, follow me. Don't just believe things about me, like really get up and get your hands dirty and, and walk behind me and watch what I do. And I think we're seeing a big movement away from the sort of Greek understanding of, you know, primarily being idea-based, theoretical abstraction, and things moving more toward a Hebrew way of following a Jewish Lord who says, follow me, who says, get your hands dirty, who would pray the Shema three times a day, which has everything to do with loving our neighbor. So these types of things are very earthy, very practical. And so I, I agree with what you're sensing and that I think people are longing for that kind of spiritual based life. Mm. All right, let's move to threes. 
the threes, I won't belabor that just because I am a three. I tend to over talk about the three. I already have talked about it a little bit. I would say for threes, you're upstream because we often hide from authenticity and it's a strategy in order to protect our image in the world and to sort of project the kind of persona we want. I will double down and say confession with a loved one, confession with a pastor or priest, confession with a community group, someone you trust is really important. At least confess to a journal as your starting place. Because if not, you will tend to hide throughout the majority of your life. And there will just be many things that long to be formed in you that never are because of the amount of hiding and energy that you take to do that. I go back to this fourth and fifth step because I've just done it with my sponsor. And, you know, it's pages and pages and pages of material. And, you know, just the, first of all, the exercise of writing down. And I would not just call them defects of character because I, there's a part of that that is a little off-putting to me, but really they're defenses of character. Mm. They're character defenses. More, you know, this is this is what this is the strategy that I unconsciously came up with as a little person to find my way in the world, to protect myself, to cope, to navigate relationships. In my worst sense, it is this, you know, kind of my ego strategy for getting other people to organize their priorities around mine, right? And so, however we we want to frame it. Um, just that journey of, of self-reflection followed by um, a, an excruciatingly honest hmm. sharing of one's with a trusted other, very important, with a trusted other um, that is doing similar work. So they know what it is that you're doing. You know, I remember when I was being taught how, how to be a confessor, you know, and in, in my tradition, you, know, you, you sit here and the the person you're with actually sits next to you facing the other direction and so that they're basically just speaking into your ear and they would talk and then then they would start sharing i always say okay start with the hard one first and let's work our way down you know what i mean and then then uh at the end the priest always says is there something more <laughs> and then they come up with something and like and then they, there's a pause and you go is there something more <laughs> and you you literally do that several times before you give the absolution right the prayer of absolution and it's quite beautiful and it's full of sweat and rashes you know and and, and whatnot yeah. but of course the outcome is this freedom this knowledge of of that it's okay to be in our our humanness, our creatureliness, you know. Let me ask you about um, that. I'm interested in that posture. Is is it because that confessor is a vessel and and not the sort of um are they simply a vessel for a sense of acceptance and forgiveness? Or why wouldn't you look at them? Why would you look beyond them? That's my question. Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons. One is very practical, I think, which is when when looking directly at somebody, it, become, it can become very, very difficult for the other to really share what's going mm. on. Um, and and for the, you know, and I, not that I've ever looked shocked because I'm a four on the Enneagram and empathy and like you could tell me anything and I go, mm. you know, I just, I don't have a lot of judgment, right? But, you, you know, uh, I think the the, the person in that moment of confession can be looking for cues. Like what, what is the response here? And so I do think there's some benefit in sitting beside and, and uh, speaking toward the confessor without looking into the eyes of the confessor. Now, when I do the absolution, always, I'm always looking. 
Yeah. Always looking. Ah, I see. And, and, and we look to, I look together with them. Um, anyhow. So, all right, let's, let's move on to those beautiful fours. Let's talk about fours in a couple of ways. So because okay. it's you, Ian, I would say the downstream for you that's going to come easily is probably actually journaling or some method of getting out gushing emotions. This is what's happening in my life. I always encourage fours that because that typically comes easy for you to understand your emotions and and begin, be able to articulate those or at least understand them at some level. It's good to start with actually um, interceding or blessing other people in, in whatever journal or mechanism that is, because often fours can move toward a preoccupation with their own emotion mm -hmm. as if that's the only thing happening in the world. And so I'm often really quick to tell fours, hey, start with actually celebrating or at least um, like longing or, or lamenting with someone else before you get to your own stuff. So that that's one of the things I would say in the way of journaling, don't just get sort of tunnel vision about your own life. The upstream I would say is always move toward feasting. Feasting is such a good practice for fours. Always be the one to show up with the bottle of champagne at someone else's graduation. Always be the one to show up with the most lavish dish at some sort of some sort of festival or some sort of way in which we're acknowledging a birthday or something like that. Because once again, it gets you out of yourself. It moves you into celebration. And one of the things I do for my tradition is I try to pair each type with spiritual practices with a time of the sort of what's called the, the liturgical year or the church calendar is what they would call it. And so like for the four, I'm like, never miss Easter. Because Easter is that reminder that no matter how dark your inner world may feel at times, joy always comes in the morning and there will be a day where light will remain forever. And so mm. that's what I would acknowledge for the four. Mm. Which can be very hard. I think back on times in my life, uh, I, I often like to say that fours, well, in many ways, all of our passion, all of our passions or our vices are addictions. They very much have a compulsive kind of uh, quality to them, right? And so for me, at different times in my life, I'd say that one of my primary addictions was suffering. Who would I be without my suffering, without my story of pain, right? Uh, and wouldn't I become kind of boring and weird if everything yeah. was like a, you know, like a, like a seven running around, you know, just bringing the champagne and you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and so uh, two things strike me. I think two other practices for fours that are so helpful. One, one is what I, what I call sympathetic joy. And this is a Buddhist idea, which is that rather than envy coming up when I see someone else having that, who has something I want, it could be material. It could be a character trait. It could be who knows what, right? How can I have sympathetic joy to, to actually not see their success as my failure? How, how, how do I see that individual and actually celebrate their, that which I would normally envy in them, I celebrate, right? Yeah. And here's the kicker, with sympathetic joy in that Tibetan Buddhist tradition, um, you have to be able to practice it with your enemies. So that when your enemy experiences success, you must celebrate it with them too. That's the hard stuff right there. Mm -hmm. That is it, you know, and as a, as a three wing four, so like competition, comparison, control, those can become yes. like three guiding seas for me. Do, do you remember? Um, so I grew up in the N Nintendo era and there were some games where you could create your character. And so let's say you had 10 points. You could give three of those points to like strength, 
five of those points to endurance, which left you with two points, maybe for, you know, I don't know, height. And that's often how I used to see others and how I still am tempted to see others is like, if it's almost like there's a limited amount of success that can happen in the world. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm not getting it, then they're getting what's remained over and there's not enough for everybody. And I often view that as a sort of framework that if they have a win, then that must ultimately mean that I'm a loss. Or if they have a success, that must mean that I'm a failure. That's why social media is crippling, all of these comparative tools that we now have that just reinforce our own brokenness if we're not careful. So I completely resonate with what you're saying. Mm. There's a, there's a no- can I say something? There's a great expression. Uh, there's a book that uh, Daniel, Ra- Daniel Lappin, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and he talks about the Jewish mindset. And he says, if you have 10 friends and one of them succeeds, it puts you that much closer to success yourself. If you have two, three, four, and five, your your odds increase. They continue to increase. And he said, that's just part of the mindset. So your win is is ultimately my win. I just love that perspective. That's a great uh, way to think about it for a three and a four. Mm. You know, I think there's there's one other, and we actually close with a kind of, I don't know if it's a blessing or not, but the end of every typology episode, but where I got it from is a meditation practice. Um, And what it is, is in your mind's eye, you imagine, let's say, AJ, I would imagine you for a moment. And I might spend five minutes in my meditation time, eyes closed, attention really fixed on this set of declarations or blessings. I see you in my mind and I say, may you have love, Mm. may you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. Mm. May you have rest. And I just keep saying it. it's almost like the Jesus prayer or something. But what I'm doing, I'm not saying Jesus, you know, please give AJ, you know, love, joy, peace, healing, and rest. It's like, no, it's coming from me. God mm. will figure out the blessing, right? I, I don't even get involved in that. That's above my pay grade. But, but literally what I'm doing in that moment is rather than getting sort of all fixed up in my need for love, joy, peace, healing, and rest, it's like just as you were saying, to bless the other to bless the other in the moment. And, and that's transformative for me in some very powerful ways. Um, I really don't have time to go into it, but I will say this. Uh, I actually can become very theoretical. So it must be a very strong five influence in my life. You ah. know? Uh, I, I love ideas. And, and so for me, I, in, and even in meditation, I actually do not get hung up in feelings at all. Really, I don't have all this wave of feelings that have come up during meditation. It's actually a fairly neutral space for me. Um, And I have to be careful more thinking about the theories and the ideas around meditation. Mm. They have to be quieted, but not feelings. It's fascinating. Everybody's different, I guess. Okay, moving on to fives. Fives. And and, um, just to put a a period on just so much richness richness that you just said, Ian, with with Anthony, if you struggle to bless your enemy, the more you do it, the more you'll believe it. Mm-hmm. That's what's happened for me. Like mm-hmm. there are people in my life that I just, I have, um, I've been wounded by. And um, I mean, there's another level of that. If there's, you know, deep trauma and abuse, things like that, that's a different category. Sure. But there are people just like throughout the course of my day or my year that have just like offended me or et cetera, et cetera. And it's like all I can do to bless them. And I find that there's a transformative thing that happens to me as I learn to mean it, mm. but it's the meaning it that takes time for me to get there. And the only way that happens is through effort. 
and repetition mm. of me continuing to do it. Yes. So um, here's something, this is something I tell priests all the time and pastors, look, people come to us all the time and they say, how do I forgive somebody? And what do we usually say? Pray about it. Or, you know, it's often what they say, or pray about it. Or the, you might say, they might say, eventually they'll get frustrated with the question. I go, let me give you the name of a therapist. <laughs> and I'm, you know what I'm saying? And I'm always like, really? Like they pay you for that? So here's the deal. That practice I just described uh, in the Buddhist tradition is called metta. And so you start with visualizing yourself saying, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have mm. peace, may you have healing, may you have rest, may you have a sense of ease, right? Whatever. Then the next, you would move on then after five minutes to thinking of someone you deeply love, deeply love, and you do it for that person, which will generate probably feelings of warmth and, and, and care, right, in, in your person. Then you move on to someone who you have a neutral relationship with. It could be the woman behind the counter at CBS, somebody that you don't, you know, it's just like a neutral relationship. Then the next person you move on to is to somebody who has deeply wounded you. Mm. And by then, of course, you've generated some warmth. And then you do it for five minutes with them. Here's my experience, because I've done it uh, in some profound ways. There have been people I've struggled for years to forgive. For years, I could not let go of the emotional charge. Every time I thought of them, cortisol would run through my body. You know, my heart would start to race. Like, I hate that. You know what I'm going to say. So... Now, if I do that for three or four weeks, just practicing that in meditation, 15, 20 minutes at a pop, thinking about that person, blessing them, all the, within three weeks or so, two weeks, the charge is gone. And I really have this genuine, actually felt experience of forgiveness. Yeah. A felt experience of it, not just an intellectual one, but I feel yeah. it in my body. And it's like, why didn't anyone ever tell me that? Well, maybe the Jesus tradition, this is why he said, forgive 70 times seven. Maybe that's for the same thing that happened. Wow. That's not for like 490 different things that, that just like ticked you off. It's for the same relationship that's dysfunctional, the same thing that happened. You're going to have to come back to that 70 times seven. It's an invitation to say, keep going. Don't give up. Keep pushing in. And I think that's like a, an incredible invitation for Jesus to normalize the fact that we hold wounds, we hold grudges, and then we begin to get cavernous in of ourselves and joy is lost and all this rage and stuff that God wants for us begins to get stuffed in us and we get stuck in those patterns. And so mm. um, I think that could be helpful for um, that, that came out of Jesus that was really helpful for me. I love that correlation. So good. Uh, just a, just a, just to finish that out, I have a picture. My father was a drug addict and alcoholic and died from it at 63. And you can imagine growing up with that, there was a lot of trauma. There were a lot of wounds. There was a lot of suffering. And I found a picture of my dad when he was five and he's sitting cross-legged on a lawn, uh, looking directly at the camera. I have that photo in where I meditate. And sometimes I just put it up in front of me and I do that prayer practice I just described. And I just do, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, may you have rest. And I direct it right toward him in my mind's eye. Mm. And I have to tell you that uh, in my own experience, it took me, I, I don't know, dude, it, I went to so many therapists trying to figure out how to forgive this guy. And it wasn't until I actually used that practice that I had a moment where I went, I found just spontaneously that I was warmed and gentle toward him. 
Mm-hmm. I could actually get a little emotional about that right now. That uh, I had spent so many years and so much money trying to figure out how to do this and such a little simple prayer practice actually changed my heart. Yeah. Mm. And yet it was effortful. It didn't just happen. Yes, it did. Right, right. And, awesome. and then I started to wonder, how come I never had a pastor who could give me a practice like that? Yeah, that's right. You know, and I'm not, you know, finger wagging at all these pastors. They just don't know, right? They just don't know. All right, moving on to fives. I want to get through all these. Fives, again, I am a Shema. I love the Hebrew scriptures. Um, so integration is really important. So for anyone, no matter what your type is, if you're a human, um, integration of spirituality. And that's why triads really matter. So fives are really mm. that, that, that head triad. I find fives. I'm married to one. She's amazing. She solves all the problems of the world. She understands things from a meta level. She also has a particularly intense strategy to stay uninvolved in drama. She doesn't want to get her hands dirty. She has the answers to all of my problems in her head. But when it comes to getting involved in that conversation or in that community or whatever, she kind of, she kind of desires to stay at a distance. So I would say for fives, the ones I've experienced, at least it's really important for you to think about your spirituality as not just ideas in your head, but Mm -hmm. it really is important for you to know what you feel and to also use your body in some way, shape and form to be involved, to be willing to get your hands dirty, to be willing to show up certain places, even when it's inconvenient for your timetable or something like that. I find that um, a, a really great principle to live with is that love begins where convenience ends. And for both threes and fives, convenience can become really important. So love actually only starts when we get to the end of our convenience and we begin to become inconvenient for the sake of another. And so for fives to realize that life is messy, life is dirty, and for you to sort of get outside your head and to be involved in that in some sort of practice is really helpful. That can be the mm. soup kitchen. That can be the church group. That can be the neighborhood thing. Whatever that is, it's just a matter of being involved, being included in something where you're known, you're felt, and your presence is wanted. Yeah, to move from observation to participation. Yes, that's right. it. That's it. In the, in the life of the five. Great, let's move on to sixes. Sixes, and this is going to sound a little churchy, so excuse me for listeners that may not identify with this. Whatever your sort of learning book or your sort of learning theory would, would, would be, for the sixes in the church tradition, I would say scripture memory is really important because fear is really um, something that continually grips the six to talk themselves out of all sorts of good ideas. Mm. And so I find that like having those scripts, I mean, the, the root word of scripture is script. In other words, what the scripture is trying to do is in story us. It's not just trying to be a history lesson or whatever. It's trying to actually give us a story to live into that's bigger than our individualism. And so we need scripts that we come back to over and over again at life that sort of live in our muscle memory, that live in our neurology, that when those moments come where I just want to run or I want to stop or I want to, I'm fearful, it's having those scripts that reinforce that, that my vision, my dream, my conviction, it wasn't just a result of last night's burrito and now I've moved on. It actually was something I need to move into. And so I need to rehearse and remember my script. So whether it's a Bible passage or whether it's whatever that might be for your tradition, have that wired into your neurology so that you're not just making decisions based on how well or not well things are going in your life. 
So scripture mm-hmm. memory in the Christian tradition is really important. And we've really yeah. gotten away from it in the last yeah. few decades. And so that is that, right, the journey from the vice of fear to the virtue of faith, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Trust. Um, f- f- fantastic. Okay, moving to sevens. Yeah, sevens, um, which I, I find that most all of us love talking about the most for one reason or another. Um, sevens, it's so obvious. It's very Linton. It's also wo- woven into Advent in the Christian tradition. It's having a vision for solitude and silence at least once a day. Um, I find that in that place, you are confronted with how things are going, hmm. what you feel. Uh, it gets you out of a future orientation of always planning to sort of evade my emotions or my past. Um, and so have a time where you are reflecting. I find that if you can reflect in nature, if you're someone like me, where there's continuous partial attention, as Linda Stone would say, we're like, oh, squirrels, we're always sort of veering when we just sit and try to be still. And that's really hard to do. Um, get on a trail and just mm. allow yourself to be without a phone, without a podcast, allowing yourself just to be in creation and letting your thoughts just go and rehearsing, why is that happening? What do I believe about that? What do I make up about that? What conversation do I need to face and not run from? So that sort of practice of solitude and silence is really important for uh, the seven every day. Mm. Again, (laughs) moving then from the vice of gluttony to sobriety Mm. Uh, would be what maybe the the upstream practice would would help those folks do. Eights on the Enneagram, challengers. Yeah, I think eights are often unaware of how they're perceived. They need accountability. So if like if you lead a thing or if whatever you're doing, I think you need to appoint someone uh, because, again, you're a powerful person typically. So people often um, won't approach you for one reason or another. So just giving someone like literally giving someone, hey, I give you permission to on some sort of rhythmic basis to to tell me how I'm showing up and how others perceive me. So it's Mm. that sense of being able to face that, which you'd rather ignore or just assume the best about and to say, hey, listen, I trust you. No matter what you say, you're not going to be penalized for it. I need accountability. Would you bring that to my life? That's a hard practice. Nobody wants to face that. When we begin to face those things, it's so helpful. I would rather know that there's mustard on my chin than live my life with it sitting there. And yet so much of my leadership as a three, it's similar. I just assume the best. I hope for the best. And yet there are trusted people around me that I need to say, hey, give me some feedback because I'm going to need it. Yeah. You know, I, I like to say that with eights, I, I like to tell eights, I act, I ask them, do you have someone in your life who can tell you no? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think uh, to your point that that's a really, really important thing to have in the, in the life of an eight. We all need it, but it's particularly true with eights, you know, who, um, often don't have that person in their life. Same thing for sevens, by the way. Do you have someone who can tell you no? All right, last one, nines. This is so rich. Yeah, so nines are often going in, you know, all sorts of, they're pulled in so many directions or the people that we want to be allies and to pull them. They often don't even understand their own sort of priorities, things of that nature. Well, mm-hmm. as it turns out, almost every, or I should say the ones I've studied, most, most spiritual traditions have a sort of habitual vision for your day so like in the Jewish world, it's the fixed hour prayer, the three, the three prayers a day, right? right. Um, in the ancient Christian tradition, it's the fixed hour prayer. What's happening is we are pulled into so many cultural scripts throughout our day that we lose priority about who we are in our unified meta story. And so what I find for the nine is have times in your day. And this is easy with phones now because you can set an alarm. There's so many good apps. When you get up, maybe at lunch 
and before bed or whatever would work for you, have times in your day where you just pause for 30 seconds and you can reclaim your identity Hmm. so that you're not being pulled always in so many directions and that you have a voice to assert what it is that you're called to and what you need to say yes and no to. Hmm. So I used to pastor a church in Grand Rapids called Mars Hill Bible Church. And we had a pretty large staff and I would have whoever was working the front desk three times a day at, um, at nine at noon and at three come through all of our offices with a bell. And that person would just ring a bell. And no matter what meeting we were in, what whiteboard session we were doing, what was happening, a bell would go off. And it was a really, a ple- it was really a pleasing bell, not like a school bell where you're changing classrooms. Mm-hmm. And we would stop whatever we were doing for 30 seconds. We would be still. We would say the Jesus prayer, which is just Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And then we go back to our meeting. Mm. And it was that reminder, oh, wait, the divine is here. We're not alone. And whatever problem, whatever conversation, whatever thing we're facing right now, God is here. And it was Mm. so invitational for us just to get off of ourselves and to reprioritize who we are. And so I would say for the nines, find that in your own rhythm where you can recenter around your identity and who God says you are. Right. The whole process of differentiation and of individuation for that nine is so important. And I I like the bell idea because it reminds the nine to wake up. Right. It's like we associate bells. I mean, that's what the church bells were designed to do to remind people to wake up. It was it was uh, also for uh, the nine to spiritually wake up. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. To come to come out of the trance of their type. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, into into a, an awareness of their own actual being, their okay. own beingness. Right. Uh, because as we know, nines can, if they're not careful, they can become selfless, no self. Yes. And so if they if they have some practice like a bell like that, fantastic, you know, to come back to the reclaiming of personal authority and self is so important. So one of the, one observation I have about all of this, and uh, I, I, you know, I don't know if you know, I just dropped a book last week called the, the, the story of you. And the, the subtitle is an Enneagram journey to discovering your true self. And um, the, one of the principles in the book that I, I draw on is the St. Ignatius of Loyola's a Jerry Contra, which I know you know, which which is literally meaning to act against. And that's what you're talking about here with all of these practices. Act against that which is your normal strategy, your normal pattern, right? In order to uh, neutralize it, if you will. Because these patterns are there to make us feel safe, to cope with our insecurities, right? Our doubts. Um, and I just, I love what you're saying because this a Jerry Contra thing um, is a, a way of moving against the grain of those habitual yes. patterns. Yes. Uh, so that it's like a, a, you know, again, to break out of the, the, the trance of, of your type and it's, it's your ego's machinations, if you will. Yeah. It's honest self confrontation. Mm-hmm. It's willing to confront yourself, but, but it's important to, you know, we talked about shame earlier. It's important to know that grace is here that love and forgiveness is available and that like we, we can change and we can grow. And it's a really beautiful thing for ourselves, for our neighbors, for our world. And I just, I find the most hopeful thing today in a world where it just seems like there's so much conflict is that, that change and growth is possible. And if we do good self-work 
if we have more people around us committed to that, then I think our communities will become more beautiful as a result. Mm. Well, that's a great place to end. Mm -hmm. That was such a rich conversation, man. We're going to have you back on. Awesome. Uh, and and uh, talk some more because I, I just sense there's so much richness that we could we could mm -hmm. grab out of you and, and, and share with people. But I love that we walked through all those types and spoke about these upstream practices and how can they move from their vice to their virtue, right? Their passion to their virtue. Because I do think that people are like, okay, great. I know the Enneagram. Now what, now what the hell do I do? Mm -hmm. yeah. you, you know what I'm saying? Like I know about my type, but now what the hell do I do? Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, one of the things that's been so interesting, and I'd love to talk with you about this at a later point, maybe offline, is uh, is the integration of narrative therapy in the Enneagram has been really helpful to me. And that's what the, the story of you is about in a lot of ways, which is these are broken stories. Each type is a, represents a broken story. And the yeah. unconscious motivation of each of those types is actually in direct opposition to the larger story of God. It is in direct opposition to the story of grace. And you could go through all nine of them and show like, oh, this really is just a, this is a broken story that helped yeah. me in childhood. But in the afternoon of life versus the morning, in the afternoon yeah. of life, it's yeah. going to, this broken story needs rewriting. Yes. Yes. Right. And so uh, maybe we can get together at some point and I can, uh, actually, I should just send you, maybe, maybe after this, you give me your address, I'll send you a new copy of the book. I'd love that. Ian, did you study A.H. Almas's work on holdings in the Enneagram? No, I know Almas's work, but I have not. No, he's got he's got this thing called holdings, which no one ever does anything with that I've read about. I think they're brilliant. And they basically talk about um, it's sort of like, um, you know, the Atlas sort of God of, of holding the weight of the world. What, what happens is that we understand ourselves and our world is broken. So we overcompensate into certain directions in order to try to to fix it, if you will. Mm -hmm. This is where I feel like a lot of narrative therapy, therapy comes in. I'll give you an example. So like type one is so obvious, like in a broken world, I will learn to hold the world together through self-improvement, right? And that just exponentially increases the weight that people carry, which is where anger comes from, rage and all that stuff. Like a two would say in a broken world, I am going to serve in order to get others to accept me. You know, So these the strategies that we have in response to our trauma, our pain, our past, in order to try to put the world back together. And they're sort of, they're sort of good, but they're also really heavy and, and not ultimately helpful um, and cause all sorts of mischief, I think, over the course of time. But anyway, I, no one talks about Almas, and I, I feel like his stuff on holdings speaks into what you're saying and some of the work you've probably done around that. Yeah, because I think one of the things that has helped me about thinking of the, of the Enneagram narratively so uh, it's so interesting to me. Like, I remember when I first started studying the Enneagram and then writing about it, I kept thinking as a therapist, you know, gosh, I don't know if these are personality types. I kind of struggled with the term. And I, I, okay, I see them as personality types, right? But personality is a very complicated, complicated subject. Yes. You know, personality theory, personality development, you know, disposition, temperament versus learned. I mean, it's just so complicated, so contested within psychology. <laughs> Um, and I kept reading them going, okay, they're personality types, okay, whatever. Uh, what, what, but what it really dawned on me early on was like, yeah, but really they're stories. Yeah. These are stories that people inhabit. Yeah. And we become the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and how the world works. Sure. And, and that's personality theory. Like, like your personality is built on a story, right? And so for me, when I 
when I'm able to sit with people and I, I ask them, what if the story you tell yourself about who you are and how the world works isn't true? Yeah. Right. And then yeah. they go, because the moment you start talking about narrative, uh-huh. people, people pay attention because we all understand <laughs> yeah. our lives as a story. Right. Yeah. And then you say to them, well, what, what would you do if I said that you have agency to change the story? Yeah. Like that story helped you survive as a little kid. Yeah. So thank it. Yeah. Right. But, but if you find yourself in the wrong story, leave. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So uh, did you see uh, today or yesterday, there's a, a film that George Clooney directed just dropped called The Tender Bar? I know of, I've heard of it. Yes. It's based off a memoir. It is, it is that in, an, in essence, what you are saying is, I just watched this film today because today's ostensibly my day off. It was that. It was that. It was tell your, what story are you telling yourself? Wow. And the story you tell yourself is the story you can actually live into. What mm-hmm. story do you want to live into? Yes. And it, it was brilliant. So I would, I would commend that to you to mm. watch that as soon as possible. It was fantastic. Oh, I, I love to hear that. And, and maybe, and I love to hear that maybe the book is well-timed. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Write it. Who knows? That's good. All right. I can't wait to read it, man. AJ, tell everybody where they can find you, uh, your website and, uh, you know, your socials and all the stuff people ask about at the end of podcasts. Yeah. AJSherrill.org. That's two R's, two L's. It's a confusing last name. I'm sorry about that. You can find me on all social media, um, or at least one's not called TikTok and others like that, but uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, it's just my name. So uh, yeah, would love to engage. All right, everybody, that's AJ Sherrill, A-J-S-H-E-R-R-I-L-L. And he is the author of Being with God, the Absurdity, Necessity, and Neurology of Contemplative Prayer. Is that what it is, I think? Something to that effect. And then the Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. I commend both of those books to you. Go grab them. And uh, what a rich conversation, AJ. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Typology guests, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, and may you have rest. Until next time.